Hi, I'm Kenneth Johnson. I am the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Thank you for joining us for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak. This is episode 552 of the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, great guy coming your way, Kenneth Johnson. And he is a director, a writer, a producer, an author. Uh, he was a director of Six Million Dollar Man, creator of V, the series. Remember that? And also the Incredible Hulk TV show. That's right. He created that. Alien Nation, the TV show, The Bionic Woman, and so much more. And Kenny is going to be with us in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. So I hope you're going to stick around for that. And uh, lots of things going on here. I had a computer crash, lost a lot of stuff trying to figure out how to get everything back together here. <laughs> uh, but uh, still got a lot of listeners coming to On Screen and Beyond. Of course, uh, some places I'd never even heard of. Uh, Aland, Åland, uh, I guess. I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, up around uh, Norway, somewhere between there in Finland, I guess. somewhere uh, Up in that area, anyways. And uh, Australia, got a lot of people over there. Uh, Queensland and Victoria and New South Wales. Stateside, well, we've got Hollywood, uh, Florida, Pompano Beach, Florida, and Fort Myers, Florida. Also, California people, a lot of people in California listening. It was uh, some people in Fremont, and also Santa Monica, and also uh, Santa Maria, Corona, Kinsburg, some places I never heard of. But uh, anyways, uh, appreciate you listening. I hope you'll keep listening to On Screen and Beyond. And uh, the latest uploads, we've been putting them up left and right here. Every day I try to get at least one up there. And uh, Robert Vaughn, Napoleon Solo from The Man From U.N.C.L.E., we put that one up. And Joe Matania of um, Criminal, Criminal Minds, we have... Uh, episode with him on it max bear jr jethro bodine hey from the beverly hillbillies what do you you know it was a fun show having him on and so many others uh, just so many others i hope you uh, keep listening to on screen and beyond tell a friend we've got uh, all our old episodes coming up and we then new week weekly we've put up a, a new show so uh, keep listening subscribe that's the best way to keep up with what episodes are coming your way and uh, whether they're the new releases or the re-releases that we're putting up and uh, if you uh, just tell a friend about it of course that's uh, the best way to get things out and if you enjoy the show please leave us a review or five-star review to help us get the word about uh, on screen and beyond out there because it helps a lot and if you're on Instagram, you can uh, get us now. We are at On Screen and Beyond Podcast, okay? And if you're on Twitter, you can get us at On Screen, the letter N, Beyond, okay? That's because Twitter, you know, they, you can only put so many letters and everything. So anyways, that's an update on what's coming your way, and uh, we've got other things coming your way, of course, here at On Screen and Beyond, but let's get right into it. It's time for Remake Madness. <laughs> Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, well, the big screen remake of Jungle Cruise with Dwayne Johnson is uh, going to be playing in theaters and on Disney Plus Premier Access. And that comes your way on July 30th. Jason Momoa, and he's scheduled to star in a remake of 1993's Cliffhanger, which originally starred Sylvester Stallone. And the remake of Masters of the Universe is listed right now as in production. So uh, no word on when it's going to start filming, but uh, we'll keep you updated. And that's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies, Ray Romano will be directing for the first time. It's a dramedy with no name at this time. And it's about a family in Queens, New York, and a boy who can change his life through basketball. And Bruce Willis and John Travolta will star in Paradise City. It is the first time in 27 years that they have worked together, and that was, of course, the last time in Pulp Fiction. And James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan will team up for a lockdown drama called Together. That's it for upcoming new movies. Next on On Screen and Beyond, Sequel City. And what's coming your way as far as sequels? <laughs> 
sequel city well it looks like in 2016 it was announced that there would be a sequel to the edge of tomorrow but now according to emily blunt one of the stars of that uh, movie says an edge of tomorrow 2 may not happen due to the expense of making that film Time will tell. And the film 365 Days on Netflix will be getting two sequels. The success of the steamy film has led Netflix to greenlight both sequels. And Catherine Hahn has joined the cast of Knives Out 2, joining Dave Bautista and Ed Norton and Daniel Craig. And filming starts soon in Greece. That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD, well, May 18th, The Ultimate Collection, Beverly Hills 90210, lands on DVD in a 74-set disc with all 10 seasons of the show, plus the first season of the 2019 Remake of BH90210. And uh, also on May 18th, you can get CSI New York. It looks like the fans will be getting CSI New York, the complete series, with 197 episodes, 55 discs set with interviews and gag reels. And July 20th, Star Trek Discovery Season 3 flies onto Blu ray and DVD. That's it for TV on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond. Movies on DVD. Movies on DVD, June 1st, Boogie hits Blu-ray and DVD. And No Man's Land with Frank Grillo and George Lopez arrives on Blu-ray and DVD. And it looks like Voyagers goes 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD on June 15th. And that's it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on screen and beyond... TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time. Well, some fan favorites on TV will be coming to an end soon. Mom is ending. Last Man Standing is ending. And now Blackish will end after season eight, it was announced. And Nickelodeon Legends of the Hidden Temple will be rebooted, but this time it will be on the CW. And Rebel has been axed by ABC. That's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, well, this guy's going to bring back a lot of memories. He was the creator, the producer, the director of so many different shows. Kenneth Johnson's going to be joining us, the creator of V, the Incredible Hulk TV show, Alien TV, Alien Nation, rather, TV show, and the Bionic Woman. And he's going to talk about all of those and, and just give us some great information, a lot of fun. Kenneth Johnson is coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. screen and beyond we have as our guest a writer a producer a director the creator of numerous hit tv shows including the bionic woman the incredible hulk the v science fiction franchise the alien nation tv show he also has directed and produced many shows and he also wrote for those shows as well as the six million dollar man short circuit 2 and d3 the mighty ducks it's kenneth johnson Kenneth, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Hi, thank you, Brian, and do call me Kenny. Uh, that's uh, uh, my father was Kenneth, so I was always <laughs> Kenny. Usually spelled K-I-N-N-Y, Kenny, to my relatives in Arkansas, and that sort of stuck. So that's what my uh, cast and crew and friends call me, at, at least to my face. <laughs> Behind my back, uh, you never know. No, yeah, it could be something else. <laughs> that's right, and I'm sure it has been. Well, Kenny, I. I, I... I am honored to have you on the show because you have done so many hit shows that uh, people have just loved and continue to love because uh, it seems like they keep coming back. <laughs> That's true. It's uh, uh, several of the things I did sort of achieved an iconic status, which is uh, is very flattering. It's uh, you know I think it's rare when somebody is able to create uh, at least one project or book or movie or TV show or something that achieves that sort of iconic status, and uh, 
uh, I was I've been <laughs> I've been really lucky to sort of have uh, uh, found the lightning in a bottle uh, more than once and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and had the benefit of being surrounded by really talented people who made me look a whole lot better than I probably had a right to look. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's been a fun time and continues to be. Yeah. Well. Uh, We've had Lindsay Wagner has been on from the Bionic Woman, oh, and uh, Lee Majors was a guest here. So uh, you know we have uh, uh, some people who have actually worked with you. And, that's uh, right. <laughs> and Lee came on and said, "Hi, I'm Lee Majors. I'll be the next guest on On Screen." <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> I uh, I I saw Lee um, uh, about a year and a half ago. The uh, Hollywood Museum uh, Movie Museum uh, down on Vine Street. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was having a, a, a big uh, opening a big bionic d- exhibit and they asked me uh, and Lee uh, if we'd come down and Lindsay was uh, filming something at the time and couldn't and uh, I hadn't seen him in my god I don't know, 25 years or more and he got, he was the same guy man that I work with you know mm-hmm. he's, he's like a little, little over 80 now I guess that would be right and uh, uh, but still fit as a fiddle and had the same sense of humor and a grin and you know and uh, uh, it's uh, we had a great time just uh, just reminiscing about all the laughs we had and how he'd been concerned that Andre the Giant was going to drop him on his ass when he was walking through this rotating ice tunnel for the <laughs> Bigfoot episode that I did on Six Mill. And uh, the, the thing I enjoyed the most, though, was at the very, very end, after all was done and we just said or done everything and everything, and he was headed out to, his, to the car, and he was just about to get into the, uh, the limo, and, uh, and he looked over the top of it, Tim, and he said, Hey, Kenny, don't let the old guy in. <laughs> and I said, I get it, Lee. <laughs> you know, and he certainly hadn't. He was just uh, as spry and fit and funny as uh, as he had been when we were working together in 1975 or wow. six, as it was. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was great. And Lindsay, I see uh, uh, usually at least once or twice a year, we'll have lunch together, and uh, uh, and she has remained just as uh, vibrant and funny and uh, and sweet and touching and uh, as as she ever was. Uh, so we've uh, we've. We've had a good had a good run together. Yeah, it it sounds hearing you talk about this, it, it sounds like you had fun. It wasn't. It, it it almost sounds like it wasn't work for you. <laughs> My grandmother said to me, Kenny, if you find a job you love, you'll never work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. uh, and I and, and that's the way uh, it really has been, Brian. I have been very very lucky because. Uh, uh, it's like my hobby, you know. It's like I, uh, I don't play golf and uh, or anything like that. And I, I just, uh, uh, this is what I love doing more than anything else. When I when I'm not uh, uh, on a set, I'm uh, reading about it uh, being on a set, or I'm reading about uh, projects that I could maybe get my foot into, and so that we can, uh, so that I can get back on the set. Directing is what I really, really love the most of all. Um, because uh, you know writing is great, obviously. And my my pal Stephen Bochco, who had been a classmate of mine at Carnegie, and uh, Steve was in the writing program there. I was in the directing program, uh, and uh, and I never thought of myself as as a writer really at all. I didn't think I was very good, particularly in the writing classes that we took then. And it was Steve that ultimately, uh, when I first came out to Hollywood, really dragged me kicking and screaming into into writing. Um, and but uh, uh, he, he helped me to understand that uh, if you were an actor, you could do bit parts and work your way up, you know. And if you were a, a, a writer, you could write on spec, and maybe somebody would hire you or buy your script and maybe let you direct it even, you know. But if you were just presenting yourself as a director, they either gave you the money to do it or they didn't, and usually they didn't until you'd done it for somebody else. So it was, you know. <laughs> Um, so I sort of that's how I sort of you know fell into writing, but uh, uh, and I wrote. Oh, I discovered I could write and I could write pretty fast and with a fair amount of quality. Uh, and I always tried to write as fast as I could so that I could get onto the set as fast as I could. Uh, and and it was always really was like and and it still is to this day. It's like a, I'm always like a kid in a candy store. As soon as I get on my set with my cast and my crew and the the. Uh, the whole team uh, trying to collaborate to create a, a film film project. Uh, it's it's we all look at each other very often and just giggle at the fact that uh, we are where we are and we are able to do what we do and we appreciate it every single moment because it's 
I remember there were a couple of times, um, oh, I don't know, 15 years or 20 years ago, when I'd get really angry and upset on a set one day and frustrated and, you know, things weren't going right or stuff, people hadn't delivered what they were supposed to and I was angry. And, and I, at the end of the day, I said, I don't ever want to have another day like that uh, on the set. i got to remember that every day I'm on the set could be my last day. And would I want to remember it as being that way, you know? And, uh, and ever since then, I just... Uh, uh, no matter what disaster befalls us in the middle of shooting, I just sort of take a deep breath and try to hold on to my sense of humor and, uh, uh, and move forward. And, and the years at Universal, particularly doing the, the shows with Lee and Lindsay, and, uh, and I got myself in the door, incidentally, at Universal, thanks to my pal Steve Bochco, who had uh, preceded me to California by a couple of years and, uh, uh, and helped me get my foot in the door there. Uh, and all of us sort of treated it like graduate school with pay, Brian. It really, it really, it really what it was, what it, what it felt like because it was really like on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember when, uh, and I was only really interested in features, in, in movies, in long-form stuff. Um, but uh, I fell into TV because I could get a job, and uh, uh, and and it was Harv Bennett whom Steve introduced me to that uh, invited me to join the $6 million man after I had created the Bionic Woman for him just as an outside writer. I came in, we needed some script ideas, and, and that's what how that happened. And, and Harv um, uh, wanted me to join $6 million man as a writing producer. He had one other producer on the, on the series, and he needed another writing producer. And I said, well, I don't want to do that, Harv. Let me just write and direct for you. I said, producing is a pain in the ass. And Harv said, yeah, but let me explain it to you, Kenny. The producer is the guy at the top of the, of the pyramid. The producer is the guy that hires the writer and hires the director. I said, stop, Harv. That's a job I would be happy to take, <laughs> you know, and, um, uh, which is the, you know, the way that I managed to, to get myself into it. Uh, and, and then there I was suddenly in the midst of suddenly uh, becoming a, a producer of one-hour episodic television, which Harv also convinced me was the greatest. He, I remember him saying, Kenny, producing and writing and directing episodic television is the greatest training in the world for making movies or for waging war <laughs> you know and uh, he's, he's right because when you can you know, but to put it in perspective somebody makes a movie they'll spend nine months or a year doing one project that's about two hours long more or less mm -hmm. when you're doing a one-hour episodic television show in nine months you're expected to do 22 hours of film and and uh, so it's a bit uh, like living in a garbage disposal brian <laughs> but but at the same time it really uh, you, you, you either learn or you're suddenly not there anymore <laughs> you know so but we always looked at it as as great fun and uh, uh and never got tired of the of the fact that uh, uh we were we were in a state of grace as one of my actor friends once said uh, she also was always cheerful on the set and always just a great energy to be around. And, and I said, how do you do it? And she said, Kenny, we're in a state of grace. I mean, who else gets to do this stuff? Uh, and and I know that uh, Bochco felt that way. My other dear friend, Steve Cannell, whom Steve Bochco introduced me to, uh, was also a young writer at Universal at the time. It was just before he uh, wrote a script that he sent me to read uh, while I was there. And it was called the Rockford Files, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It was a new pilot that he was doing, and I said, "God, this is great!" But I got to tell you, man, that it jumps out at me. I think you ought to take it to Jim Garner, and he got this quirky little smile on his face and said, "It's already in his hands." <laughs> and, uh, um, and we were all, you know, so we called ourselves kind of the the class of 1980 at Universal Studios. Uh, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's even a, there was an article done in the Writers Guild magazine about, about that very thing. And uh, myself and Steve and John, Don Belisario and a couple of the others who were at Universal at the time. And uh, uh, it's on my website, um, kennethjohnson.us, uh, in one of the articles uh, of, uh, where they really sort of did a study of the, those of us who were at Universal and sort of were the class of 1980 at the Universal Studios University, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and just the with between you and the three names that you just threw out, I mm -hmm. mean, 
that was television. <laughs> I mean, that's those names came up for the for the next twenty years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We were we were all just starting out. Botchko was a fledgling writer uh, uh, on, a, on a you know on a slave contract, like I was when I first started at Universal. Uh, Steve Cannell was a story editor on a show called Adam Twelve, a half hour cop show with Marty mm-hmm. Milner and Kent McCord. Yeah. Uh, which he got me a couple of writing gigs on, and also a directing gig. Bless his heart. So we, you know, we all worked uh, uh, with each other uh, all the way along there, and uh, and Botchko also was helpful. But um, uh, yeah, it was a it was a very energized place, and uh, Glenn Larson was also, of course, oh, there at the there's time. Another name. <laughs> another name that uh, you know. The, but you see, all of those guys, uh, Steve and Glenn and Steve Cannell, um, and later Phil DeGare, uh, were all writers, mm-hmm. you know, and they loved it. You know, they reveled it. I mean, Cannell would get up at five in the morning and and write pages and pages and pages before he even went got to the office. And Bochco was uh, uh, equally fast, and, and I was fast, but I didn't have the the facility and the writing uh, chops. I never thought that I that either of them had, and and also I just didn't like it as much, Brian. It was not as much when you're writing. You know, it, it's very insular. <laughs> you're in a room, and if you don't have a writing partner uh, or 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 a, or a writing staff that you're developing things with, it's all on your shoulders, and it's really hard yeah whereas directing to me is like is like breathing <laughs> so, uh and, uh, and also the this it's it's also also more a, a more sensual experience in the sense that i can touch you brian you know and and my and the people that are around me we we can we can be a team and and you're physically there in the in the room with me uh, uh in addition to bringing your talents and uh, whether they're lighting or costume design or, or production design or whatever but we're there talking we're kicking ideas and we're going back and forth and we're in vans going to look at locations i mean you know that's yeah. that's just the best yeah yeah sounds like fun and yeah. now, how did you come up with the i mean obviously the idea of of um, the incredible hulk was already out there but uh, <laughs> how did you uh, develop that into a show did you just say well this sounds like you know it would i could make something out of this or how did that work um well i i had uh when i had when when I had first met Harv, and he uh, was had, he was in the first full season of Six Million Dollar Man. It had been a mid-season replacement, so they were starting their first full season, and they were apparently really desperate for scripts. And this was in a time when uh, there were not huge writing staffs and writing rooms as they seem to have now, you know. Uh, and 45 producers who aren't really producers but really writers, but they give them a producer title so that they'll write for them, you know, that kind of thing. It was just uh, you know a, hand, a very small handful of people and a, and an outside writer. And outside writers would come in and pitch ideas to us. And and Bochco had given a script, a feature script that I had written to Harv Bennett, uh, which Harv uh, really, really liked. And I said, I can't help you get it produced, but I like your writing and I like the characters. Can you write something for Six Mil? Uh, and I suggested The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, the idea of a bionic woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he liked that. And, and as we worked together on it, he really took me under his wing because he realized I had some producing chops. I had already had a fairly successful career in New York and uh, as a writer, as a producer-director uh, in live television. And then for uh, for two and a half years, I was a producer and then executive producer of a thing called The Mike Douglas Show, which was the only daytime talk show back in those days. Yep. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I knew how to get stuff together and make it happen. Uh, but uh, and when I came to California, of course, and said, "Okay, here I am, ready to make movies," Hollywood said, "No, no, you're a talk show producer." And I, said, oh shit! And that's when Botchko, uh I was literally sleeping on his couch when I first came out here, and uh, and he said, "Kenny, you got to write. If you write, you can control your own destiny." And I and he literally dragged me kicking and screaming to it. Uh, but I did, and I discovered that I could write and could write pretty fast. That led to a bunch of unproduced screenplays that are still on my shelf, Brian. And and also, to me, being able to go into Harv, who liked the script that I had read and, and, uh, and then liked my idea for uh, The Bionic Woman. And, uh, and as I was uh, fashioning the script and putting it together um, and, and we were working together, he really took me under his wing, took me into the editing room, took me with me, showed me what it was like to, to do the day-by-day process. And, uh, um, and that's why he, he lured me into uh, becoming a writing producer with the idea that I could eventually hire myself to write and, most importantly, to direct. <laughs> Um, you know, which is which is what I did, and because the Bionic Woman really 
energized the whole $6 million man franchise. Uh, when we did the first two-parter, it just took everybody's heads off, and, uh, and they were crushed when Lindsay died at the end of it, which I had not been in my script. I didn't want to do it that way. But uh, Frank Price, who was running Universal, said, no, we want to do Love Story, Ken. We want a dead, 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 right? <laughs> so she, she uh, was a big mistake. And, and then later, you know, the... Uh, the um, uh, letters started pouring in from fans, and uh, uh, and also they noticed the ratings were enormous, and they said, you know, we really need to bring her back. Why'd you kill her anyway, Kenny? <laughs> you know, so I had to bring her back, and then suddenly they wanted to spin it off into a separate series. So there I was now, the guy that really just wanted to direct, and I found myself in a position of writing and producing two simultaneously two shows. And, you know, there are guys that love that stuff, but... I didn't want to do that, but I did it for the first a year, and and by then, you know, two two garbage disposals at the same time is just too much. Um, and and about and because of the success of uh, Bionic Woman and and how much Six Mill had come into the top ten since I had been producing on it, um, Frank Price called me one day and said, Ken, we've just acquired the rights to some of the Marvel comic superheroes. Which one would you like to do? And I said, none of them, Frank. I just, I, because uh, they were like, it was like the Human Torch and the Man from Atlantis and Ms. Marvel and uh, one other, oh, Captain America, uh, and this other uh, ludicrous thing about this green guy, you know. And I just, I said, Frank, I'm just not into primary colors and spandex. And, uh, you know, he said, well, I'd really like you to think about it, you know, because they saw that I'd been successful with this one larger-than-life character in, in, the, in the Bionic shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I was, I was at home at night, uh, that night, uh, Brian, tr- really trying to think of how I could say no politely to the head of Universal, you know, uh, because I just didn't want to do it. Uh, but I was reading uh, a novel that my wife Susie had read when she was, I don't know, I think 18, uh, and I had never read, called Les Miserables. So I was in, in the moment, I had the, the idea of the fugitive concept, Jean Valjean being pursued by the in, Inspector Jovert, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I had this churning in my head, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, well, hmm. I suppose I could take a little bit of Victor Hugo and maybe a little bit of Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde and this ludicrous thing called The Incredible Hulk and turn it into a, uh, a, a serious psychological human adult drama, uh, not a comic book kind of show. Because uh, I looked, I, you know, so I went back to Frank. I said, "All right, let me let me look at that comic book." And the only thing I took from the comic book, he turns green, and he he and uh, when he gets angry, and uh, and that's about it, <laughs> you know. And it was gamma rays. That was in gamma rays. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so I went to Frank and I said, "All right, look, I will." I uh, and Botchko actually encouraged me to do it this way. He said, "Look, you want if you don't like what what you what they're throwing at you, tell them you'll do it. But what will they give you in return?" Right, and um, so I went to Frank and I said, "Okay, look, uh, let me give you my idea for how to do the Hulk." And I pitched basically exactly what you saw in the original two-hour movie. Uh, and he said, "Okay, this is great." And I said, "It has to be my casting. I don't want some Universal guys showing, shoving an actor down my throat that I don't think is right because that happened a lot in those days." Uh, and he said, "No, it'd be your casting. It'll be you. We'll just leave you alone. And let you do it." And uh, and so I said, okay, that's good. Very good. And I shook hands. I said, wait, wait, wait. Before we shake hands, Frank, I want something in return. Okay, sounds good. What do you want? And I told him that I didn't think that Sir Walter Scott's novel, Ivanhoe, which is a great swashbuckling novel of, of uh, knight, knighthood and chivalry, and Robin Hood is one of the supporting players in it, you know. And it's about this young knight. It's like a Luke Skywalker kind of tale, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, but it really was in the, in the set in the early, in, in the nights in the, in the 11th, 12th century. And I said, I really would love to do a, uh, a mini series of Ivanhoe. Frank said, okay, you got it. You do the Incredible Hulk, we'll do Ivanhoe. Boom. I jumped in and started, and I wrote the pilot script for the Incredible Hulk, 125 pages in seven days. Uh, from start to finish, in longhand on my yellow legal pad. <laughs> wow! And um, and the really interesting aspect of it is that we shot the what we call the white pages of my first draft. When the script comes in, and it's the first draft. It's on white paper. As soon as you start making changes, it goes to different colors so that everybody can track the new you know mm-hmm. uh, color changes. 
and the Hulk script didn't have any colored pages in it. It was all white. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and actually, the same can be said for the when I wrote the pilot of Alien Nation, uh, and also V, for that matter, too. We really, in all three cases, shot the white pages of my first draft screenplay, with ch- just changes that I made myself for production as we went along, or some lines I would think, you know, think could be a little better here and there. But basically, that's what it was. And... Um, uh, and you know, and that's that's what happened. We just rolled right into production. Frank loved it. Uh, CBS loved it, and um, uh, and we uh, uh, and Stan Lee was 100% behind it. I had met Stan briefly beforehand, but uh, on other things. But uh, he really liked what I was doing. He understood why I wanted to change the the name of Bruce Banner to David Banner because I was trying to get away from the comic book kind of Lois Lane Lex Luthor Peter Parker alliteration you know mm-hmm. yeah. which always just screams comic book to me um, and to try to try to make it as real as I could and uh, and the one and only actor that I sent it to was was Bix um, I had seen Bill Bixby. Uh, I'd known him. I met him a couple of times previously, just in, in uh, on a couple of other shows that I had done. Maybe he might have done the Douglas Show or something, but we never got to really know each other. Uh, but in 1973, I saw him do a, t- a TV play uh, on PBS called uh, Steam Bath. And if you've never seen it, you should get it. It's it's available on Netflix, uh, and it's about this group of people that find themselves in a steam bath that they don't seem to know how to get out of. Hmm. There doesn't seem to be an exit. There's just them, and then there's this strange little Puerto Rican steam bath attendant, you know, who toy like that man, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, and slowly they begin to realize that this is not just a steam bath. This is like purgatory, and the hmm. little uh, uh, steam bath attendant is God, and huh. uh, and uh, and in uh, uh, in the in this 90-minute radio 90-minute television play that I saw Bix do. He went through every single emotion that you later saw in all of the episodes of The Incredible Hulk. He did it all in 90 minutes. I mean, it was dazzling. And wow. so there I was four years later writing the script uh, for The Incredible Hulk, and the first and only name that ever came into my mind was Bix because of that performance. And um, uh, and I and we <laughs> he told me that uh, his agent gave him the script, and, and Bill said, I don't even want to read a script that's called The Hulk. I mean, please, forget it, you know. <laughs> and and his agent said, you want to read it, Bix. Okay, just read it. So he read it, and he called me the next day and said, can I come see you? And he came coming into my, came into my office. I always used to say that Bill didn't just come into a room. He came into a room like the first eight bars of Tiger Rag. You know, it was like, <laughs> here I am now, you know. And, uh, and he was a force of nature. Uh, and he just said, I love this. Are we really going to do it like this? Is it going to be real? Is it going to be human drama? Is it going to be psychological suffering? And I said, yes, yes, all of that. And um, uh, and he said, will you stay with the show as long as I'm with the show? And at that point, uh, <laughs> I think I've said before that I, I sort of remember hearing faintly the, the sounds of the music of Faust playing in the background, you know. <laughs> and is this my bargain with the devil here, you know? <laughs> Uh, he seems like a nice guy, but what's underneath? You know? But I, I took a deep breath and said, "Yes, I will," and uh, and that's how it was. And uh, and we had a an amazing five years together, and uh, and never uh, a moment of, of nonsense uh, or bullshit. It, it, we had a lot of arguments. Oh my God, we had a lot of knockdown, dragout arguments, but they were always about something. It was about a line. It was about a character. It was about a nuance or a theme that we were exploring. It was It was never about, you know, I have the vapors and I'll be in my trailer right. drinking or something, you know. <laughs> uh, it was uh, It was just the best possible your relationship you could have. And with Jack Colvin on board uh, as, as Jack McGee, who was just a brilliant actor and a, and a wonderful uh, adjunct to the show, and how Louis Ferrigno really grew into the role from a guy that had never done any acting at all. I mean, he's a, he was a bodybuilder, and he was 24 years old, you know, wow. and he was from Brooklyn, and, and, he, and he was deaf, you know, yes, yeah. but um, uh, he, <laughs> Louis used to say to me, Kenny, why doesn't the Incredible Hulk have more dialogue? <laughs> And I said, well, Louis, for starters, he didn't come from Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, and when we were first working together, because he was deaf, as so many people who are who are deaf, 
their voices are hard to understand sometimes mm-hmm. anyway. But I, I didn't want the the creature in the script. He never said anything. I, I, I didn't want to go to the Hulk smash dialogue of the comic books because it's like, duh, we can see that Hulk is smashing, you know. Um, and uh, and I just wanted to avoid that kind of Frankenstein food, good, yeah. you know, kind of dialogue. Um, so that's how it happened. And uh, and then I was very lucky to bring on board with me Jim Parriott, who had been um, a writing producer with me on the Bionic shows, um, and is still a really one of my closest friends to this day. Uh, and uh, and then later on, Nick Correa came on board, and Susan, uh, or rather uh, Karen Harris and Jill Sherman who wrote their very first script in the business, I think, for me, uh, which I had to rewrite entirely because it just was not good. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, uh, but then they came back a little bit later and said, hey, we'd like to bring you another idea. And I said, oh, God, really? Because I had, I had taken the time to sit down with them and go through and say, okay, look, you're going to get your script and you're going to say, what happened to what we wrote for you? And I want to explain to you why I changed what I changed and what the reason I did, you know? And they really listened and were appreciative. And then they came back, as I said, a couple of weeks later. And so we got another idea. And I thought, oh, great. But <laughs> it was a really good idea. And they wrote it up. And it was good. And I said, okay, go on to the script. And their script was still a little fixing here and there. But it was good. And the next season, I hired them to be the story editors on the show. And the season after that, I moved them up to executive story consultants so they could get some more money. And then the year after that, I made them the producers on the show, <laughs> and uh, uh, and it was it was a great. It, it, I, I always love being able to help lift people up, like Harv helped uh, and lift me up, you know, yeah. and uh, and it really paid off because they were they were we had a terrific uh, set of people that were working on the show with me throughout. Yeah. And V was. Uh, I just loved that show. I mean, it was a miniseries to begin with, but uh, it was it was one of those things that after it ended, it was like, boy, I wish there was more. And of course, then you, well, you made yeah, more. Well, <laughs> yeah, there was. Unfortunately, I, I wasn't around for the subsequent stuff. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, the, the way that uh, I, I had read Sinclair Lewis's novel, uh, It Can't Happen Here, which <laughs> we've been hearing a lot about in the last few years, actually, right. that novel. <laughs> Uh, because it was about a rise of, of fascism happening in uh, America the way that it had happened in Italy and Germany. And this was, the, as I said, the book was written in 1935 or six, I think, uh, with the idea of, well, it's America. It can't happen here. <laughs> you know, and of course it does. And I was really struck by it. Um, and I thought, God, it would be great to do a piece about a, a, a sea change in our lives, about what happens when there is suddenly a huge sea change, because there hadn't been one, Brian, at that point since 1941, you know, since Pearl Harbor was attacked. That was a sea change, December 7th. The world changed for America, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and until 9-11, we never experienced uh, another one like that, um, until maybe January 6th of this year when the Capitol was overrun. Um, but, uh, but all of those are, are, you know, with such monumental moments. But, and I, so I wanted to sort of explore the idea of how America would react uh, everyday people, not not generals and presidents, but how everyday folks reacted to when there was a sudden sea change, when suddenly a, a an uber power rolls into your life, uh, like the Nazis rolled into uh, the low countries in Europe and uh, and said, hi, we're the new guys in town, be here to be your friends, because the English are going to mine the, mine the English Channel, you know, we will help you, protect you from them. Uh, you know, and slowly they revealed their other face, their darker face, mm-hmm. as it were, yeah. And uh, and that that idea intrigued me, and that's where the the notion of V came from. And and my my initial concept was a uh, was a realistic uh, human drama that didn't that did not have any spaceships or aliens or anything like that in it. It was a a homegrown fascist uprising in the United States, like it really got uncomfortable in the last year, as we've seen in this country. Uh, and that's why people started talking about Sinclair Lewis's novel more and more. Um, and I, you know, and I was in the midst of working on it um, when I, uh, Brandon Tartikoff and I had dinner one night, and he was then the president of NBC, and I'd done a couple of other shows for him um, and projects together. And he asked what I was, and he, I mentioned this, and he said, God, that would be great. Oh, I want to read it. And I said, No, that's no, not for television, Brandon. I really trying to, I see this as a movie. So let me read it. 
And he read it, and he just flipped out, and he said, "Look, this is great. We can do it. Let's do a. Can we do a big? Can we do a big mini series or something?" And and uh, and I said, "Sure. I, I wouldn't say no." Uh, but he didn't think that the Americans maybe would get fascism, <laughs> which maybe they still don't, <clears throat> and uh, uh, and suggested uh, that it should be an outside force that uh, occupied us, like the Nazis, uh, you know, the the Soviets or the Chinese, uh, in, uh, uh, and I just didn't think that would sustain. I didn't think they could sustain a protracted occupation of the U.S. And then I think it was it was his vice president, a guy named Jeff Sigansky, who later went on to run several networks and several studios, uh, who was at that point, he was a young uh, MBA out of Harvard, you know. He said, how about aliens, Kenny? And I thought, no, God, man. You know, I went through being the game show producer, and then I got to be the superhero producer Mm -hmm. and writer, and now, yeah, I don't want to, oh, the pigeonhole, Brian, gets smaller and smaller, you know. Yeah. I, I always tell my film students, be careful what your first success is, because that's what they'll want you to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, but um, uh, but uh, but uh, Brandon really loved the idea, and and he and he said, uh, and I said, no, I don't know, I don't know, I, I'm so, so tired of aliens and stuff. And they just think about it, think about it. And I went home that night, and I did think about it, and I thought, it's a really brilliant idea. Because I can tell the story that I want to tell. Because the, the story I wanted to tell was about power and about how people reacted to power coming into their lives. Something with power. The Nazis, the alien forces, whatever. <clears throat> and uh, how some people would uh, suck up to them and collaborate like the Vichy French did in World War II mm-hmm. with the Nazis. Yeah. Others would say, you know, if I just keep... If I, Keep my head down, and I'm, I go. I go along, and don't make any waves. Maybe they won't take me away or conscript me. And particularly if I'm not Jewish, or in case in the case of the of, the, of V, the scientists, they represented the the Jews in World War II. Uh, and then there were the the other group of people, of course, are the resistance people that say, "No, wait a minute. This power is being abused, and we need to fight back against it in every to the to the extent of giving our lives if we have to." And I thought this this is that's really cool, and that's the story that I wanted to tell, which I realized I would absolutely be able to tell in all of the nuances that I had wanted to use, but I would have the additional eye candy, if you will, of the visualizations and the spaceships and the the fact that I can literally have them show a different face to us by ripping off the face that they have right yes. and um uh so I could work in metaphor, which is I think one of the the joys of doing speculative fiction or, or dealing with characters that are one step beyond reality uh, is that you really are sort of working in mythological kind of terms and metaphoric terms. Uh, and uh, and I think it was that underlying substance that really uh, caught fire. And, and I think, uh, Brian, to go back to what you said at the very beginning about the, the shows that I have done that have sort of become iconic, um, I, I think the reason that that's happened as I look back is that I, I always tried to have the things that I was was doing, the projects that I was doing that were commercially successful, have a, an artistic uh, and substantive underpinning so that there was a there was a layer of substance underneath what mm. was going on. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I mean, when The Incredible Hulk went on the air, you know, people and even a lot of the critics at the first, at the beginning thought, "Well, this is a comic book show. Kids are going to like it." Right, Batman. And, <laughs> yeah, that's that. that nah, 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 yes. Right, yeah. And uh, uh, but what happened was, uh, kids tuned it in to begin with, maybe a little bit, but it was. But that's part of the reason I wanted to have my own casting because I wanted a, a a really respected actor, television star like Bixby. Mm-hmm that would draw in all of those adult people to say, well, wait a minute, if Bill Bixby's in this, you know, it can't be all bad, you know, it can't be all childish. And um, and then they would tune in. So what happened was very quickly, the kids would be watching, but the adults said, oh, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Right. <clears throat> you know, this story is about about the demon within you, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, and it was, uh, and it was, it was true. And then we, we, and I brought that same kind of uh, sensibilities to uh, to V, and uh, later on to Alien Nation, yes. uh, which was was, you know, when Fox first talked to me about Alien Nation, 
uh, they just asked me if I'd look at the movie, which had not been a successful movie, and I had not even seen it. Uh, and I went over to, I said, no, I, I, I don't want to even think about something that's called Alien, okay? I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of that. <clears throat> but they said, well, just come see it. And, and I went, uh, and I'm sitting in the screening room, and, and I'm watching what I think I've, I've been, I've characterized it as Miami Vice with cone heads. You know, it was, uh, uh, it was trying to be a cop show, but, uh, oh, then we got this funny guy, and he drinks sour milk for, to get drunk, and, but it was, they, they were just sort of, I was really kind of bored. And about halfway through the movie, I was sitting alone in the screening room over at Fox, and this one scene came up when uh, we got one glimpse for just one shot in the whole movie of uh, the family of our alien cop. Uh, which is, and you just saw a shot of, on, on the porch of this little alien woman and her two alien kids. And the bell went off in my head, and I said, wait a minute, who are they? What's it like to be them? What's it like to be, say, Vietnamese living in Galveston, Texas in 1974? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, what's it like to be the latest minority off the boat? Um, and I went back to Fox and, and to the executives, and I said, okay, you think you got lethal weapon with aliens? And they said, yeah. I said, no. I said, what I can do here is in the heat of the night. I can do a piece that's about prejudice and discrimination. And where'd you get a name like Virgil, boy? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and and, uh, and that's something that we can that will have legs because it's about something. The picture, like V, was about power. Alienation was about intolerance and about prejudice and discrimination. There was a lot of that in V too, uh, as a matter of fact. And a lot of that stems from my upbringing because I was raised in a very virulently anti-Semitic bigoted household uh, where I heard every racial slur at dinner every night you would ever hear. And this was just from upper, I wouldn't even say upper middle class, basically middle class family. And just me, I was an only child. Uh, but somehow I knew it was wrong, Brian. I just didn't yeah. buy it. And, uh, uh, and so wherever I have been able to throughout my career, I have tried to chip away at that kind of intolerance and, uh, and discrimination and, uh, uh, and put it in the forefront so that we don't forget that we should not be that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's sort of the long story version yeah. of it. Well, Kenny, I, I, <clears throat> I wanted to mention uh, TV shows now are not like they were back then, uh, just the whole format of them. But one of the biggest shows that's out now mm -hmm. that I've watched, it when I watched it the first couple of episodes, I said, this reminds me of the Hulk, not in the sense of, of you know, the, the creature and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But each week so they went on a little adventure and then, you know, the next week it's another one and they're all working toward a, a, a certain end. And I find the Mandalorian to be very much like that. No, really? Okay. Uh, it, it, to me, it seems like, you know, uh, they watched, <laughs> you know, your shows <laughs> <laughs> and, and are bringing back that type of, of TV as opposed to, you know, the way things have been been for the last... Yeah, I only... I, I, I did see a couple of episodes I was curious at the beginning. I don't watch actually much TV at all, Brian. I really never have. Uh, but, uh, uh, but you know, I, I did... Uh, I, I see what you're talking about, uh, you know, in that. And... Uh, uh, and I, you know, and I think that's admirable when when people can find ways to speak to the basic nature of of, of humanity uh, mm -hmm. and and find a ways to get those things, you know, on the on the screen whenever possible. I thought also that, you know, I saw a few episodes. I haven't stayed with it again because I just don't follow TV much. But when I when I, I saw a couple of episodes of Stranger Things, and I thought, boy, this really feels like the stuff we were doing in the 80s. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, in a good way, you yep. know, oh, yeah. <clears throat> in a good way. And uh, because it was, it had that that uh, that magical Spielberg touch of uh, 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 commercialism with underlying artistry, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, yep. know? Yep. Uh, know you know, which is which is what I, I have always sought to uh, to emulate as much as I can uh, myself to have stuff that can be uh, ar artistically pleasing and satisfying to to my own soul uh, and at the same time be commercially uh, viable and draw people in and uh, uh, and it's funny how you know you don't set out to, to I, I never got into this business uh, Brian to, to make money or to have have fame or fortune or any of that I, I, I never even thought about that I only 
cared about the theater, and I intended to, originally just to be in the theater um, because I loved it. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I loved it, and uh, uh, and what I and when I went into Carnegie, uh, it's now Carnegie Mellon. It was then Carnegie Tech, the drama department at Carnegie. It was then and still is one of the premier departments of drama in the country, and it was th- all theater. It was all. It was no film or TV. It was all theater. <clears throat> and uh, but I was lucky enough in my very first week of my freshman year to meet a guy that really changed my life. Um, he was not a, dr- a dramat. If you were in the drama department, you were called a dramat. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bill was in a uh, was a, um, a business major, something like that. Uh, and but he, I discovered he was a big man on campus because he ran the school newspaper, the college newspaper. Uh, he ran several of the other major organizations on the student organizations on the campus, and he also ran this this thing called the Film Arts Society, where he screened a classic movie. Uh, every week, a different movie every week. For three bucks, you got 14 films a semester, <clears throat> and um, uh, and they were. It was. I had been a movie fan since I was a kid, of course. But Bill introduced me to the cinema. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. to introduce me to the classics, the foreign classics that I had not seen, the silent classics that I had never seen. Uh, and uh, and I, I suddenly realized, wow, this is amazing. Bill, incidentally, his last name was Pence. Bill Pence. He and his wife went on to create the Telluride Film Festival oh, yeah. and for, ran it for 35 years. Um, and, um, and I always call Bill the, the godfather of my film career because, uh, because I realized that when you have a wonderful moment in the theater, uh, and we've all had those where it's just a, you know, it's, it's staggering. You'll see something on the stage and it's magical. But once the curtain comes down and the lights come up, it's gone. You know, I mean, it's in your memory. Yeah. But you can't revisit it. However, if you can capture it on film, uh, then you got it. I mean, and I think that's part of the reason that uh, uh, I love movies and, and uh, television films so much is because once you've got it, I mean, Bill Bixby is just as alive today as he was then. All the people who did V with me and Alien Nation uh, just won't age any more than Bogart did when he did Casablanca, you know? <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that is when um, I was looking up stuff on you for this interview, um, I happened to see a, a picture on the Internet of you standing next to a person and then one of the actors from V, and it was Mickey Jones. I don't know if you remember. Oh, him. sure, I know Mickey well, yeah. sure. And, yeah, and, and Mickey was actually the first <laughs> guest on on screen and beyond. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah, so I was surprised to see it. Yeah. Yeah, so, mm. but, Kenny. No, I, Mickey was Mickey was great. We worked together on a on a couple of things uh, over the years. Yeah, and, uh, he's uh, a nice guy. Yeah, he was a dear, dear, a dear guy, a good friend. Yeah. Well, Kenny, I'd like to finish up. <clears throat> I know we had talked before we got on on the air, and <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, like you said, we could go fourteen days <laughs> just <laughs> talking about because there's so many other things we could go over. But I, I know, you know, we don't have that much time. So, right. uh, but I'd like to finish up with a, a question that takes us away from all the TV shows, the the great TV shows that we all enjoyed and still are enjoying. But uh, when you you sort of answered this a little bit, but <clears throat> when you sit back and relax. What are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what are your favorite movies now and of the past? Well, um, the, uh, uh, when I remember back on television, and the television that I watched particularly before when I was a kid, uh, Hitchcock, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents really jumped out yes. at me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I was just amazed by the, the, the irony and the quality you know, of it and, uh, and the storytelling. Uh, later on, I, I obviously became a fan of, uh, of the, the Twilight Zone and the work that Rod Serling was doing, very much in the same vein that I have tried to work, uh, where he, he was playing. He, there was a lot of depth going on with Rod, in, in all of Rod's stuff. I, I met him. Uh, he came to Carnegie one day, uh, uh, and I met him there. And then years later, we got to know each other really pretty well out here in California. Um, and uh, and the work that he had done. <clears throat> had had been uh, had been a big impact on me um, in terms of movies um, and, and in terms of contemporary TV now I, I really can't speak to it that much just because I just don't watch that much of it uh, although I really enjoyed the wire uh, which I discovered in its last season and uh, and I thought the the writing was 
and the performances were just so incredibly compelling that uh, it just took my head off. And a lot of the early uh, sopranos work, uh, I think, was the you know was the same way. Um, and um, uh, in terms of movies, uh, it's uh, it's always pretty easy for me to point to my favorite movie. Uh, <clears throat> because people say, well, you know, of all the movies, you know, and well, there's so many. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. where do yeah. you start? Well, to me, if if anybody ever has the opportunity to sit down and watch the original Akira Kurosawa Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. yep. uh, which is like three and a half hours long, and you feel like you've been in the theater maybe an hour and a half, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's so completely compelling. But it is uh, it is a masterwork of of humanism. Uh, and it also is a masterwork of filmmaking because it literally, The Seven Samurai, contains everything. There is drama, there is humor, there is romance, there is love, there is extraordinary action sequences, there is cinematography that just in black and white uh, is, is astonishing, and there are performances uh, uh, by Akashi Tamura as the, as the principal samurai, and of course Toshiro Mifune as... Uh, uh, cute Joe, uh, and it's it's a movie that I have I never get tired of it. I have taken at one point I, I literally went through it on an old reel-to-reel video uh, machine, frame by frame, <laughs> to see every single and why did he make the cut here and what's he doing here and why did he, and it's it is just a a, a masterwork of, uh, of of work and I think. I think, in many ways, a lot of the work that uh, that Peter Jackson did later on the Rings, the first Rings trilogy, and all, uh, was uh, was equally astonishing in uh, in its uh, use of cinematography, and its use of character, and its use of color, and its use. Yeah, it was you know it was just wonderful. I was thinking about. I was listening to the music from it the other day, and thought, God, I got to go see that movie again. <laughs> um, so those are those are a couple of the particular standouts for me, anyway. Well, Kenny. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us here, and I also personally want to thank you for all the entertainment and the shows that you have given us over the years, and I, I really do appreciate you. Well, bless your heart. I, I, I so appreciate what you say, Brian, and uh, uh, and as I say, it, it's it's been fun, and uh, uh, and it was it was also fun recently to, to jump into novels. I, I fortunately had a novel a, a couple of years ago that became a bestseller called The Man of Legends, mm-hmm, yes. uh, which was not an autobiography. <laughs> it was, uh, but it could have been. That, it could have. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a book that uh, that really has a, a lot of breadth and depth to it, and uh, and became a fortunately kind of an instant bestseller and continues to do very well on, on Amazon. It's out there. And my website, you know, people can see more stuff about me and, and what I'm doing. But uh, I, I just, what I've always tried to do, Brian, is to is to keep in mind, uh, and the, the thing that I try to pass along to all of my film students, is to try to emulate the people that have the most humanism in them, which is what Akura Kurosawa personifies. So do people like like Spielberg and, and Ronnie Howard and uh, uh, and Peter Jackson and uh, and Guillermo Guillermo del Toro. Yes. Uh, just uh, I was in an evening with him at the at the Directors Guild uh, uh, last year, and it was just breathtaking to sit there with this real guy who's a real guy and has got so much humanity in him that you uh, uh, you just want to get up and hug him, you know, <laughs> um, and that's how I feel about the work that I do, and I, and I love to reach out and hug my fans whenever I can, too, and, uh, uh, and I, I deeply appreciate the, uh, the kindness that, uh, that the viewing public and the reading public have, uh, have given me over the years, and the encouragement, particularly also from, from people like you, and, uh, and I appreciate you giving me the chance to be on, on screen <laughs> with you, and, um, and we'll have to talk some more when you'd like to. Kenneth Johnson, thank you so much for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. I'm sure a lot of you have uh, grown up with all those shows that he talked about, and if you haven't, you can go back and watch them now. They're streaming, I'm sure, all over the place. And uh, we thank him so much for joining us and talking with us, and hopefully we'll get him back here another time to talk about more stuff right here on On Screen and Beyond. So that's uh, about it for this episode. We've got a lot of things coming your way, more guests coming your way, and uh, just keep subscribing to On Screen and Beyond. That's the best way to get every episode that is coming your way, and you won't miss out on it or have to go back and look through every single episode that we have, because once we get them all back up there, all 552 of them, 
then you're going to say, oh, we got to go back and look and find these things. We're going to be popping them up right now. If you've got a subscription to it, uh, it's free. You can, you know, it'll be there for you. It'll just go and, you know, it'll be up there. So whatever you're listening to, we appreciate it. If you can leave a five-star review, we'd love that. And uh, be sure to tell a friend of most of all. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter and uh, also on our Facebook. I'm still working on that one. And uh, our uh, website on screen2mail.com. Uh, I have not updated some of the latest ones that we have reposted. Uh, if you go to those and click on it, you're going to get a, you know, saying that it's not available or whatever. But uh, I am going to be updating those. So we're just going to get things all worked out there. As I, you know, after my major computer crash, <laughs> things are a little, little crazy right now. We're trying to get out uh, all this other stuff. So uh, we appreciate your patience. And a lot more episodes are coming your way. So uh, get ready for that. So that's it for this episode. That's a wrap for this episode of On Screen and Beyond. So until next time, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. (laughs) 